There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 300, and today we are talking about books being released on March 2nd, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, hello! Hello! It's number 300! 300! (laughs) Because I'm bad at the maths, like, it's number 300, which seems like a big milestone, except our five-year anniversary is in May, like the five years Mm. since we started. Because mm-hmm. I can't make maths work in my head. I'm like, shouldn't the 300th episode? No, it shouldn't because it's 52 <laughs> weeks in a year and we've skipped some weeks and, you know, but here we are, 300. It's pretty exciting. We are going yeah. to answer a few listener questions after we talk about our books today. If you would like to send us a question, we're going to be doing this for the next four weeks. Uh, you can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com and ask us anything. People have asked us anything, as you will see <laughs> when we answer the questions. Uh, before we get started, just a general, hey, how are you, Danica? What's going on? I'm good. I just uh, just started at Book Riot full time. So that is very exciting. Yes. And it's great. I love it. Excellent. We are going to talk How some more about you? that later, actually. Uh, but yeah. Before we get to books and before we get to answering questions, we are going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow. I'll be dead in three months. Come tell my story. Imagine someone told you that. That's what Sebastian Trapp, a reclusive mystery novelist, told to his longtime correspondent, Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. So with only a few months left to live, Trapp invites Nikki to his spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story, living alongside his beautiful second wife, Diana, his wayward nephew, Freddie, and his protective daughter, Madeline. But soon, Nikki finds herself caught in an irresistible case of real-life detective fever. Make sure to pick up End of Story by New York Times bestselling author A.J. Finn for a book that gives Knives Out, that gives White Lotus. You'll like this if you like books by Lucy Foley, Nita Prose, and others. So make sure to pick it up, check it out, and thanks again to William Morrow for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita De Monte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. So this is one of my most anticipated books of the year. It follows two women of color who are in the art world, but who also kind of sit outside of it because of a lack of privilege. So the story is told from both of their perspectives and it moves back and forth through time. So in 1985, Anita DeMonte is a rising star in the art world and she's found dead in New York City, right? And then in 1998, Raquel, a third year art history student, becomes involved with an older, more privileged art student and finds herself rising up the social ranks as a result. But then she also stumbles upon Anita's story and she sees parallels between Anita's story and her own. So Anita DeMonte Laughs Last is a propulsive, witty examination of power. Make sure to pick it up. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I could not be more excited to talk about this book. I read it over a year ago. And I've been raving about it ever since. It is In the Quick by Kate Hope Day. So good. So good. It's set in the future where space travel is a thing that everybody can do. It just happens all the time. You know, we've gone to planets. We've gone to moons. It's just a thing people do. And the main character is named June. And at the beginning of the book, June is 12 years old. Her uncle is a brilliant, brilliant scientist. He's 
pretty much helped us get into space. Like his research has helped everyone get into space. Uh, but unfortunately, he becomes very ill and he dies. We know that June lives with her aunt and uncle. We don't know what happened to her parents, just that they also passed away at, at some point. So she's been living with him. She's very close with him. June is a genius. Uh, but her uncle gets very sick and he dies. And now she's left with her aunt and her cousins. And she's very curious and she's very like interested in everything around her. Um, but her aunt doesn't really understand her, and she almost burns the house down. So her aunt pulls some strings, and even though she's two years younger than the age of uh, children when they're accepted to the Space Academy, uh, the Space Academy is actually named after June's uncle because, like I said, he was that brilliant, and, and he played such a big part. Um, and she gets into this, this uh, space school, and even though she's kind of around her people... All these geniuses who want to go to space. She doesn't really fit in. Also, she's like two years younger, which is like, a, might as well be a century between 12 and 14. But, you know, she does her work. She works on experiments. She learns a ton of things. Uh, she greatly admires the protégés of her uncle. Um, a couple of his students uh, work there, teach there, help out there. Um, and while she's going to school there, there is a space mission that is lost. These people went up in a shuttle something happened they've lost communication it's been a really long time now and they have been you know declared like dead they're they're gone for good like everyone thinks they're gone but june because she is a freaking genius she figures out that the people are still out there she's pretty sure that she knows what happened and that they're still out there but she's 12 and no one really wants to listen to her and so time just goes by then it jumps to when June is 18, and she's going on her first mission. She's going to a space station with a bunch of people, and it's a, ve a very short section of her life in, in a section of the book, but it's very action-packed and exciting, and it, I really enjoyed like all the different things that you have to take into account when you're in space. Um, it's really fun. And then the book jumps again to a couple more years and now june is being sent to a moon base where one of her uncle's protégés is also stationed he was part of a group where there was a terrible accident some people were lost and he's kind of wants to be alone and june you know she's not great with people and so she's thrilled to be going to this moon base and working on her stuff and she tells him about her theory that these people are still out there. She thinks the people in the space shuttle are still alive. And this time, maybe somebody will listen to her. I loved, loved the science in this book. I personally don't want to go to space. I don't even want to go outside my house. But I loved reading about the travel and the different things that you need in space. See, I can't even come up with correct terms because I know that little about space. Um, I loved that this was just a future where it was like, Men and women can go to space, you know? Anybody can go to space. It's not like, oh, girls aren't smart and they can't do science. Like, it was, there was never any, like, sexism like that in the book. Like, everybody was a teacher. Everybody was going to space. Um, I also really enjoyed how this book has this kind of subdued feeling, like the subdued tone. And I mean that in, like, the nicest way. Like, even the action sequences, it just felt, like, very calm and relaxing. I, I just just very atmospheric. I just loved that about the book. Um, and like I said, there is a lot of action. And I love Jane herself. She broke my heart. She's so smart. And I just loved everything about her. Um, and I'm going to say this. I know I've mentioned this before because I've talked about this book. But, you know, first I was like, oh, I don't want to say anything. But now I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to say it. I think the blurb for this book, or not the blurb, but the description of this book does it a huge disservice. Like, I feel bad. I know people, that's their job. They have to write these things. But it talks about, like, the very last bit of the book. It makes it sound like a totally different story. So just don't read the, the description of this book because that is nothing to do with anything, really. Um, it, this book is amazing. It's one of my favorites of the year. Uh, content warnings for, you know, space accidents and violence, um, illness and death. It is In the Quick by Kate Hope Day. That one was one I considered. I think I considered picking it and then saw you had already. I would have fought it. you. <laughs> well, I'll definitely put it on my list for later because it <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> 
All right. My first pick is a YA novel. It's I Think I Love You by Oriane DeSomber. This is a bisexual YA FF rom-com. It's told in alternating perspectives between Emma and Sophia. Emma is a romantic. She loves love, and she is happy to play matchmaker with her friends. She is out as bi to her friend group, but she hasn't told her parents yet. They're a close family, but her parents make clueless comments about LGBTQ people sometimes, and Emma doesn't want to risk their relationship. When she learns about a high school film contest with a scholarship prize, she knows this is the perfect opportunity. She and her friends will make the bisexual rom-com of her dreams. She'll be able to get an internship in a relevant company and go to a great school. Her friends are mostly on board with this vision. There's just one hiccup, which is Sophia. Sophia is anything but a romantic. After her parents got divorced, she has become convinced that love only ends in tragedy. Is this a little dramatic? Yes. But if you're not on board with some romance tropes, this won't be the read for you. Sophia has spent the last year in Paris with her mom and her new stepfather. Now she's back in New York, but she feels left out. She and her friends didn't keep in touch, and she doesn't know where she belongs. Luckily, she still has her best friend Tom, even if there's still some distance between them. One thing she's sure of, though, she is not making some cheesy rom-com with Emma. Emma and Sophia's bickering about the kind of movie they want to make, Sophia's leaning towards something artsy and melancholic, ends up splitting the group in two. But this is a rom-com, so you know it doesn't end there, especially when their friends start thinking up sneaky schemes to reunite the group. This is a classic hate-to-love romance. At first, I was worried that Sophia was too cruel in their arguments, but as the book goes on, they both give as good as they get. We are also in their thoughts as the reader, so there's no mystery that they're in love. Even when they're irritated with each other, they're still thinking about how her face lights up when she laughs. And while Sophia's struggle with her parents' divorce and feeling out of place is obvious from the get-go, we get to see more of Emma's vulnerability as the book goes on. Despite being a romantic, she doesn't believe that she's worthy of a grand romance. She has serious self-esteem issues. She idolizes her cousin, Kate, who is a plus-size fashion fan who is unfailingly sweet. Emma is fiercely protective of her but she also doesn't feel like a good person next to Kate, who she has put on a pedestal all her life. Sophia and Emma's fighting can cut straight to these insecurities, and they also have some serious miscommunication. One of the things I appreciated in this was the discussion of bisexuality as an identity category, and specifically how Emma felt this pressure that it shouldn't be a big deal. When she's thinking about coming out to her parents, she doesn't know how to explain to them how important it is to her. And she also wonders whether it's worth coming out unless she's in a relationship with a woman. Everyone has a different relationship to their labels and identities, but I think it can be particularly tricky for bisexuals because that can mean very different things to different people and can often be dismissed as not important. So this delivers on what it promises. Both its strengths and weaknesses are its relationship to rom-coms. So if you want a bisexual FF rom-com with its accompanying drama and sometimes cheesiness, I think you'll enjoy this one. But if you are allergic to romance tropes or miscommunication, you should probably give this a pass. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very cute. And that's I Think I Love You by Oriane DeSomber. Is there an EpiPen for romance allergies? <laughs> They're working on it. They're developing yeah. one. <laughs> That's good. So my next pick is an incredible new adult book called Yoke by Mary H.K. Choi. You might recognize that name. She wrote Emergency Contact and Permanent Record. And this is Yoke like the egg and it might be my favorite of hers. It's so fantastic. I loved this book. I felt like it was really happening. Like, I knew these people. It's about these two sisters named June and Jane. Like, yes, two of my favorite books today have characters named June. Uh, they are Korean-American sisters. They used to be very close. They came from Seoul to and moved to Texas with their parents, and they grew up there, uh, and they kind of became estranged. June is three years older than Jane, and she was the perfect child. She did everything that her parents wanted. She got the best grades. She got into the best college. She's just a success story. And Jane is kind of resentful of that and has her own issues. 
and they kind of grew apart. But somehow, Jane went off to college in New York City, and June also ended up there. Uh, she took a job. She's very successful now. Uh, and Jane is living in New York City. She's trying to attend college, but she doesn't always get to, to classes. She's working a retail job that she hates. She has horrible taste in men. And she's just kind of spiraling, and she doesn't know how to get out of this spiral. Meanwhile, you know, her sister, like I said, is very successful and very, very rich. And June one day reaches out to Jane. And Jane's like, oh, what is this? She just wants to, like, rub something in my face about something else great that she's doing. Uh, but when she meets with June, she finds out that June has cancer. And suddenly, all this resentment that Jane has had uh, is, is just going away. And she realizes, like, she needs to help her sister. This is what she wants to do. Like, there's no question. Like, everything that happened between them is gone. Uh, and helping Jane helps June not only understand her sister, but she also helps her understand her mother, who has always been very distant from her and very cruel. Uh, and she helps her understand, like, her mother's choices, Jane's choices, her own choices, and she begins to heal. It's so sad, but also just so fantastic. And this is, oh, I don't know what's going on today, but this is another book where if you read the description, it makes it sound like there's this switching identities, like, like comedy, and it's not that at all. Um, but it just feels so realistic and beautiful. And I don't have a sister. And so I'm, I'm like not usually drawn to stories about sisters, but when I read one and it makes me feel like this, I'm like, yes, good job. Um, but I want to give you a content warning for racism, disordered eating, chemical abuse, cancer, and child death. This is a beautiful book. It's called Yoke, and it's by Mary H.K. Choi. I have been hearing really good things about that one. I feel like a lot of different book writers have been reading and raving about it recently. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, and I have another YA novel. It's Follow Your Arrow by Jessica Verdi. So I accidentally picked two bisexual contemporary YA titles for today, but I enjoyed them both, so I'm going to talk about both of them. And that's a really excellent problem to have because it's only recently that that would be possible to have two bisexual YA books coming out on the same day. So I'm kind of happy that I accidentally doubled up on them. Cece and her girlfriend, Sylvie, are social media stars. They have about a million followers each, and they are hashtag relationship goals. Their ship name is CV, and their lives online and off are intertwined. Cece is obsessed with the app, and that's what it's referred to in the book, is the app. It seems to be a blend of Twitter and Instagram. She makes sure to keep to her content schedule, and everything is perfectly calculated to fit her brand. Her online life is very carefully curated to be positive and inoffensive. She promotes eco-friendly products and sustainable fashion, but she's sure not to go on any rants or be too specific. Her walls are covered in protest signs from marches she's attended. But when her screaming arguments with her conservative dad were followed by him leaving, she decided to rein herself in. She's seen people get taken down on social media, usually deservingly so, and she's determined not to make a similar mistake. Her picture-perfect crafted persona begins to fall apart, though, when her bickering with her girlfriend turns into fighting, none of which is reflected on the app, of course, which turns into a breakup. Cece isn't sure what her brand is now that she's single. To complicate things further, Cece is bisexual, she's been out for years, and she's starting to get a crush on a very offline guy. How will he react to her online life, and how will her CV fans react to him? Like I Think I Love You, I really liked how this examined bisexuality as a distinct identity, not just gay light or, like, spicy straight. She is also primarily attracted to women, which isn't something I've seen represented in YA before. There usually isn't preferences attached to bisexuality in YA novels that I've read, but it's very common in real life. This one turned out to be a bit of a personal read. To explain that, I have to wander into potential spoiler territory, but no more than what's on the back of the book. So Cece is worried that despite coming out as bi, she will receive backlash online if she dates a guy. And I have in no way at any time been famous on the internet, but I have been famous in one very tiny part of the internet, which is the lesbian books part of it. And when I started dating a guy after... 
IDing as a lesbian for years online, I went through like a very miniature version of this. And seeing people talk about your dating life and identity online, especially in a vindictive way, is very weird. Definitely gets in your head, especially if you're already going through an identity crisis. So I cannot imagine being a truly public figure because I sure couldn't help myself from looking at that train wreck constantly until people lost interest. So that turned out to be something I could definitely relate to. This book also talks about what most people call cancel culture, which I don't really like as a term. I was a bit worried in the beginning about where it was going, but I think it ends up fairly nuanced. She talks about how people should face consequences for hurtful things said or done, but also acknowledges that sometimes Twitter mobs descend for no good reason. I also appreciated that the story validates Cece's decision to set boundaries around her relationship with her father. I do want to give a content warning for biphobia. This includes hateful biphobic comments that I found difficult to read, but the narrative obviously contradicts them. So for another great bi YA read that's out today, that's Follow Your Arrow by Jessica Verdi. All right. Thank you for sharing your story, and I'm terribly sorry that that happened to you. <laughs> people are the worst. They are sometimes. So. Those years ago. Yeah. It's fine now. <laughs> All right, I'm going to switch things up today. If you like psychological thrillers in which bad people are the heroes of the story, this is the book for you. It is Who is Maud Dixon? It's a debut novel from Alexandra Andrews. It's about a young woman named Florence. She's in her early 20s. She's a low-level publishing employee, but what she really wants to be is a writer. She greatly admires the writer Maud Dixon, and she wants to do things like her someday. But then Florence's job blows up because mistakes are made. And she's called by an editor who is Maud Dixon's editor and said, I have an opportunity for you. Maud Dixon is looking for an assistant. Would you want the job? And of course she wants the job. So let me tell you a little bit about Maud Dixon. Maud Dixon has written a very famous novel, maybe like a decade or so earlier. It's her only book. And it's become this iconic novel that everybody wants to read, everybody wants to emulate. Uh, it was so successful. She's made like a zillion dollars off it. And everyone's wondering, like, when is Maud Dixon going to write another book? Well, here's the thing about Maud Dixon. She's not a real person. Her name is actually Helen, and only her editor knows this secret. And now, Florence. She tells Florence that Helen wants her to move in with her in her home. She lives in the South. And she's very secluded. She doesn't talk to a lot of people. Of course, Florence has to sign a non-disclosure agreement because she's the only other person who knows the secret besides Helen's editor. This is like a dream for Florence. She gets to travel. She gets out of New York City. She gets away from her you know, horrible job that ended. She gets to study, basically, with the person that she admires the most. Like, how exciting is this for Florence? Uh, but... The thing is, Helen is having some trouble writing her second book. Like I said, it's been over 10 years, and she's sending some pages to her editor, which she sends through Florence, and Florence is like, oh, this is not very good. So she kind of makes some tweaks to it before she sends the pages along, and she's like, we are this unbeatable team. Of course, she doesn't tell Helen this, but she's thinking, you know, I'm helping her, and she's going to write this book. It's going to be amazing. But Helen decides after several weeks that she just is having the worst time writing, so she needs to go to Madagascar because that is where her second novel is set. And if she goes to Madagascar and soaks in the culture and the people and the atmosphere, she thinks it'll help inspire her to finish her novel. So she takes Florence with her. They go to Madagascar. This is very exciting for Florence because she thinks that this will inspire her to write her own novel. Uh, but shortly after their, their arrival, there is a car accident. And Florence wakes up, and she has no idea what happened. She doesn't remember the car accident, just that they told her that she was in one, and she was the only person in the car. And there is no sign of Helen. So if you're in a foreign country, and only one person, one other person knows that someone exists, and now they're gone, it couldn't hurt to assume their identity, right? So that's exactly what Florence does. She decides she's going to be the new Maud Dixon. She's going to finish that second book or maybe write her own and publish it as Maud Dixon. And it's going to be great. But of course, when you assume someone's identity, you also take on their past and their history and their mistakes. 
And also, can Florence keep up this ruse when her editor keeps calling? It's very fun and wicked and people do bad things all over the place. It's kind of like the talented Mr. Ripley. I got a very high Smith feel from this book. Um, I really liked Florence, which is a good sign uh, or a sign of good writing, I should say, because she does some bad things. She does what she has to do to achieve her dreams. And I still liked her anyway. I want to give content warnings for infidelity, murder, physical violence, car accidents, and chemical use and overdose. Uh, I loved this book, and I look forward to what Alexander Andrews has next for us. Hopefully it won't be 10 or more years. It is Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. And now it is time to hear from another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye. Bone familiar Rosie spends most of her days in the Bone Forest, hiding her powers to avoid conscription by the Witch King's army. But when she saves the life of Princess Shaw, she's offered the chance to attend the prestigious school Witch Hall. And at Witch Hall, Rosie finds herself embroiled in political games she doesn't understand. Shaw wants Rosie as a partner to help lead the coming war. Meanwhile, all Rosie wants is to stay out of trouble, but she can't really deny her attraction to Shaw. So the question is, Will Rosie give in to her destiny, or will the Bone Forest call her home once and for all? Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye is for all the magic school lovers. This immersive magic school is full of witches and familiars. It's also a queer normative fantasy world with a sapphic slow burn romance like we love. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by A Tempest of Tea by Hafsa Faisal. So Arthur Casimir is a criminal mastermind and collector of secrets. Her prestigious tea room transforms into an illegal bloodhouse by night because obviously it does. It caters to the vampires feared by society, but when her establishment is threatened, she has to make a deal with an alluring adversary. So Arthi hatches a plan to infiltrate the sinister, glittering vampire society known as the Ethereum, but not everyone in her ragtag crew is on her side. And as the truth behind the heist unfolds, Arthi finds herself in the midst of a conspiracy that will threaten the world as she knows it. So this is the highly anticipated next project from the author of We Hunt the Flame. It's got a fierce female lead. The story is fun and fast paced while also exploring significant themes like colonialism, prejudice, betrayal, and self-acceptance. I mean, it's got vampires and heists. Make sure to check it out, get into it, and thanks again to A Tempest of Tea by Hafsa Faisal for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Danica, what do you have for us next? Yes, I'm finally going away from YA novels, and I have What's Mine and Yours by Naima Koster. This is a literary fiction title following two families over decades. I want to give a content warning for a discussion of gun violence in this review. It all starts with Ray, a baker who is waiting for a food critic to arrive at their bakery and change his life. With the new business that this would bring, he would be able to propose to his girlfriend, Jade, and build a better life for their family. He has brought their son, G, with him this morning for good luck. Ray met Jade when she was a teen mom and G was a baby. He is absolutely G's father now, though, and they adore each other. He talks to a friend that morning, Robbie, at the garage he works at, and Robbie talks about the new house he just bought for his wife and daughters, and they trade plans for their family's futures. Ray decides to duck out of the bakery for a minute to pick up Jade from her cousin's house. When he gets there, though, the cousin has gotten into an argument with a man he owes money to. When the man pulls out a gun, Ray pulls Jade behind him, and he is shot. The rest of the novel spirals around that moment and what happens to Ray and Robbie's families. The narrative bounces around in time from 1992 to 2018. We find that years later, Robbie has ended up in prison because of his addiction and the choices he makes while high. His wife, Lacey May, tries to make do while he is in prison. She tells her three daughters that it's winter inside today as she turns down the heat and they play at sledding inside. But when they start shivering and complaining, she gets angry. Eventually, she moves in with a man who promises to take care of them as long as she takes care of him. 
It's not exactly romantic, but it keeps the heat on. This is a story about racism, poverty, and complicated families. Both Lacey May and Jade try to take care of their children on their own, but it doesn't come easily, and there are many hurdles. Jade tries to teach G that he is worthy, that although the world will devalue him for being black, he doesn't owe them anything. She is fiercely protective of him, but she also disappears late in the day, leaving him with a family friend. Lacey May's three daughters, Diane, Noelle, and Margarita, are all very different personalities. Diane attempts to be the peacemaker, but it doesn't usually work. Lacey May doesn't understand why they aren't more grateful to her, while her daughters judge her for her choices. When a new proposal passes to diversify Central School, bringing lower income and mostly black students into a primarily white school, Lacey May and Jade are on opposite sides of the uproar. Lacey May leads a protest against this, while G is one of the students transferring to this new school. Lacey May is white, and while Robbie is Latino, she doesn't seem to acknowledge that her children aren't white. Noelle rallies against her mother in this and eventually reaches out to G. In the next chapter, we see her as an adult feeling lost in the suburbs and mourning her miscarriage. This is a story about complicated, flawed people dealing with difficult circumstances. The relationships here, whether familial or romantic, are tense and multi-layered. It's a bit of a melancholic read, but it's a fantastic portrait of these two families. Content warnings for violence, murder, drug use and addiction, child abuse, sexual harassment, and miscarriage. And that's What's Mine and Yours by Naima Koster. Okay, my last pick today is also a beautiful novel about family and difficult choices. It is called Infinite Country, and it's by Patricia Engel. This is a very slim novel. It's like 190 pages, I think. And it is the story of several members of a Colombian family who are split apart by deportation. There's Talia. She is a teen. She is uh, American. She was born in America, but uh, her mother sent her back to Colombia when she was a baby. And now she's a teenager. Something has happened, and she ends up in a reform school uh, that is run by nuns. She escapes, and now she wants to go back to America to her mother and her siblings. We hear from uh, Mauro and Elena, who are uh, Talia's parents. They grow up in Colombia in a time when there's so much violence and fighting um, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And they, at the, when they meet, Pedro Escobar has just been killed, and they think that's going to be the end of it. But no, there's still a lot more violence and fighting. And they love this country. They love their families. Uh, Mauro has less family than, than Elena does. But they decide they want to go to America because it's not safe there, and they've just had a baby. And so they, they move to America. However, when they get to America, they have few options for jobs. Um, they get taken advantage of all the time because they are undocumented. Uh, Mauro starts drinking. He gets arrested and he is deported. And now Elena is there. She has three babies and no husband. And she's going to have to work all the time and find you know, someone to watch the babies. And she's just so upset about what has happened. And Mauro is upset you know, he feels foolish because he's been deported and it was his drinking that led to the fighting and arrest. And, you know, he's not had an easy time of it. He grew up in poverty and hardship. And, you know, he thought his whole life was with Elena and now she's in America and he can't go there to her. And Elena's, you know, she's in the same situation kind of in America. She has a terrible job. She has regrets uh, for sending Talia back to Colombia, but it made it easier for her because she couldn't take care of three children on her own. And then halfway through the book, we get a first-person narrator who talks more about their life in America. It's just this beautiful, sad, but like also hopeful story of family and their experiences trying to get home, whether it's to Colombia or to America. And it's just gorgeous. Um, I do want to give a content warning for political violence, murder, child death, illness, sexual assault on the page, and there is also the death of a cat, and I want to tell you about it because it is important to tell you a story, so if you don't want to know about it, just cover your ears very quickly. But on page six, Talia is waiting for her friend at a restaurant out back with the chefs, and 
I will just say that one of the chefs kills a cat, and so Talia retaliates. So if it makes you feel better, at least, you know, the chef got his. Um, but I was like, oh, the cat on page six. What else is going to happen? But I was okay. Um, I just, it's so, I love Patricia Engel, and this was everything that I expected it to be and more. It's just beautiful. It is called Infinite Country, and it is by Patricia Engel. We have some synchronicity in our final titles because mine is <laughs> also Infinity. Uh, my last pick is Infinity Reaper, which is the sequel to Infinity Sun by Adam Silvera. This is the second book in the series, so it's going to be a little tricky to talk about that book in particular without spoiling the first one. So I'm just going to talk about the series as a whole without concentrating too much on this volume. If you're familiar with Adam Silvera, you probably know him from his books, They Both Die at the End, More Happy Than Not, or the book he co-authored with Becky Albertalli, What If It's Us? This is very different from his other books. While More Happy Than Not and They Both Die at the End had a touch of sci-fi, this is a full-on genre series. It's a superhero story with a big cast and a big world, which makes it intimidating to jump into. You quickly encounter celestials, specters, spellwalkers, gleamcrafters, and bloodcasters without a lot of explanation of how the world works or what the differences are between them. If you let yourself be swept up in it, though, you'll pick it up as you go. Essentially, this is a world where there are people who have powers that they gain through a connection with the stars and constellations called celestials. They have very different superpowers, and there's a tension between celestials and everyone else. Regular people tend to be afraid of these people who have power over them. This has resulted in the government coming down hard against celestials, using magic that's been channeled into wands, which essentially act as guns. Then there's specters, who kill magical creatures like phoenixes to artificially give themselves powers using their blood. Both celestials and the average person generally hate specters, and they're assumed to be using these powers for evil. There's a lot more, but those are the basics. The main characters of both books are two twin brothers, Emil and Brighton. They both grew up imagining that they would manifest powers as they got older and be celestials together. Despite the prejudices against them, Celestials are also celebrities with big followings. Now, though, they're past the age that powers would make themselves known. Emil is a quiet, kind, unassuming person. Unlike his childhood plans, he has no desire to be in the spotlight or even skirting the edges of danger. Brighton, on the other hand, runs a fairly successful Celestials of New York YouTube channel. He still desperately wants to be a part of the action, and he will settle for being there with a camera for now. He has an inflated sense of self-importance, while Emil wants to fade into the background. When Brighton's attempts to interview a specter ends with the both of them and their friend getting attacked, it's Emil who suddenly exhibits powers. He has somehow inherited specter powers, which instantly makes him a target. They get taken in by a group of celestial heroes. Emil insists that Brighton be allowed to come too, but their lives are changed forever, and Brighton's resentment of Emil's powers becomes a barrier between them. I've just talked about the brothers so far, but there are lots of other point of view characters, and that covers basically people from every group in the story. So you get celestials as well as specters and the people on all sides of this conflict. Emil is gay, which isn't a big part of the plot, but there's a rivals to lovers MM romance that I'm sure many readers will appreciate. Emil is sensitive and doesn't want to fight. Ness is jaded and wounded. It explores prejudice through this metaphor of celestials. One character talks about not wanting to tell anyone about her parents' abuse because she knows that that narrative would be used against celestials as a group. I found it a little difficult to keep up with the first volume because there are so many details being thrown out about this world and there's so many characters, but I did get the hang of it. And the second volume also begins with a character list and glossary, which is helpful. And on the subject of world building, this volume, the second book, has a phoenix sanctuary, which was such a great image. There are all these different types of phoenixes gliding around being protected. I will say that if you cannot stand the perspective of unlikable characters, you might have trouble with this because Brighton definitely got under my skin, but that is fully as it's intended. 
I would also advise having this volume, Infinity Reaper, ready for when you finish the first one because Infinity Sun has a cliffhanger ending. You're going to want to keep going with the story. And that is Infinity Reaper, the sequel to Infinity Sun by Adam Silvera. All right. Hooray. We did it. I love Adam Silvera. He's great. Yeah. So interesting. (laughs) So those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I'm going to read Space Battle Lunchtime, Volume 3, which I'm so excited about because I didn't know there was going to be a third volume, and I loved the first two volumes so much. They're a comic series, and it's like a baking competition in space, and it's also queer, and I just adore it. I'm so excited. I didn't know that was a thing, but I just looked it up, and the author is Natalie Reese, who did Dungeon Critters, (laughs) which I talked about when it came out, because that is so much fun. So I'll have to mm-hmm. check out Space Battle Lunchtime. You should. That's pretty exciting. What are you reading? <gasps> I'm reading The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson, which is a continuation of the Truly Devious series, which I love. Oh. The Truly Devious trilogy is finished, and this new book uh, is related to it somehow. It's started in the... I just started it. So it's like set in the 1970s, and surprise, surprise, they find a box in the woods. I could not be more excited when I found out that she was doing a fourth book because I was kind of sad when the trilogy ended. I highly, highly Mm -hmm. recommend it if you like YA mystery trilogies. And Maureen Johnson is just the best. So So those are our new books and the books we're going to read. And now we're going to answer a couple of listener questions. Uh, This first question, I think I'm going to roll it out each episode because it kind of covers all the hosts. So um, this first question is from Chantal. And they are wondering what exactly the hosts do for jobs. And do some of us work other jobs other than at Book Riot? And if not, what do we do for Book Riot? Yeah. Did you want to start or should I? Um, You go ahead because you just started working full time for Book Riot. Yeah. So I was working as a teacher before this, but just like a week ago, I guess two weeks ago now, I started working full time for Book Riot as an associate editor. And I am still doing the stuff that I was doing before. So I'm still doing this podcast. I'm making weekly videos that are new releases videos on the YouTube channel. And I am also a bibliologist on TBR, Tailored Book Recommendations. I'm still doing that. But now I am also helping to edit and schedule posts, edit and schedule newsletters, research which news stories we should be covering. So kind of checking out what sort of book news is coming out and making sure that we have posts going up about that. I make Pinterest pins. I help contributors and work with them. And a lot of kind of miscellaneous things. I also still write for the site. So it's a lot of what I have been doing and then a a lot of other miscellaneous jobs added on to that group. So I'm loving it. Like I said, it's just been two weeks, but it is so much fun. And it's just getting to talk about books all the time and have that be my job. That is the dream. be better? (laughs) What about you, Liberty? How are you a professional leader? <laughs> so <laughs> I, of course, do the podcast and I do the Backlist podcast once a month. I also write our new books newsletter and the Book Radar newsletter, which is like upcoming deals and cover releases and fun book news plus pictures of my cats. Uh, I also do some work on the back end of the TBR subscriptions. And I also have another job, which... I can't tell you about, which sounds weird to say it, but I do like to mention that I have it because it does take up a lot of my time. So it's work. It's a secret job. Let's just say I read books and I tell someone about them and it's pretty exciting. So basically I just read all the time. My eyes are destroyed after a year of doing both of these jobs um, and just looking at screens because of the pandemic, like so few actual books have come into my house. So mm-hmm. I have to go get my eyes checked, but it's worth it. It's been so much fun. <laughs> just reading, 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 reading all the time. So it's the dream and I love it. Yeah. So Kendra wants to know a few things. Uh, first, what are your favorite brand of shoes? I do not have a favorite brand. I'm vegan. You're vegan too, right? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. I'm vegan and I'm always looking for good vegan shoes that are also not made in a sweatshop. And I have 
not really found a brand that I love. So every time that I wear out my shoes, I look for the perfect vegan, cruelty-free brand. And I'm, I'm still exploring. I haven't found the perfect one. What about you? Well, I mostly wear platform anything because I'm only <laughs> 5'2", but most people think I'm much taller because I always wear like four to five inch platform, usually boots. I get these um, non-leather boots from this company called Why Are You, which is a good question. Um, and they're like <laughs> these always like crazy space alien boots, which I really love. Uh, and then I can reach things on the shelf. Um, and then I just started wearing uh, Merrill sneakers for when I exercise because as much as I would like to, you cannot jog in platform boots. And I love them. They're kind of expensive, but I've purchased cheaper sneakers before and they don't last very long. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I absolutely love about these is that they don't squeak on my floor. Like we have hardwood floors and my Ooh. sneakers are always like, and these don't mm -hmm. do it. And so I'm like, worth the money just for that. But they're fantastic. I love them. I was obsessed with Converse sneakers when I was a kid. And I had the coolest pair in the history of Converse, I'm pretty sure. Um, in like When I was in junior high, they came out with these like high knee-high Converse, but like you rolled them down, and each time you rolled them, they were like a different color. And then I had a pair of leopard ones that glowed in the dark. That was like peak Converse sneakers. I would love to have a pair of those again today. Um, they were just amazing. But they're so flat and on your feet, mm -hmm. you know? And I have really, really, yeah. really big feet, so it looks like I'm wearing clown shoes um, when I wear <laughs> Converse. So, Although I do still have a pair of, like, black knee-high ones. I have a lot of thoughts about sneakers, apparently, and shoes. But <laughs> good question, Kendra. Um, mm -hmm. So I am going to ask you this next question because I still have not listened to an audiobook. Um, Kendra wants to know, do you have a favorite audiobook narrator? I listen to quite a few audiobooks, but I haven't kept track of the narrators, which I should because it really makes or breaks a audiobook listening experience. I will often quit an audiobook because I'm just not vibing with the narrator. So I should really start making a list. But after I looked at this question, I went back and looked at one of my most recent audiobook listens that I really liked, which was Take a Hint, Danny Brown. And that one was by Ioni Butler. That was the narrator for that one. So obviously I like that narrator, but I don't, I've never sought out books just because of the audiobook narrator, but I might start doing that now. I should explore. Yeah. I keep saying I'm going to listen to an audiobook, but I just, I just can't do it. My mind just wanders all <laughs> over the place when I'm listening. However, if I ever do listen to one, the first one at the top of my list is Eddie Izzard's memoir, like, because she narrates it. And from what I understand, mm. she also starts making like other notations and telling jokes in between, which isn't included in the book. So that would be really awesome. Um, yeah. But I just I don't know. I can't sit still. <laughs> Unless I'm like well, reading. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm always doing something while yeah. I'm listening to audiobooks. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, it would be kind of strange to just be staring at a wall. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing is, like, I don't do anything else, maybe, you know? If, like, I had, like, some other hobbies, like knitting or something, I could see that happening, mm -hmm. but I just read books all day, so <laughs> I don't know. Um, and Kendra also wants to know if I would ever do a podcast series on Civil War books, and I don't think so. Um, the Civil War is my favorite time in history to read about. I own over 200 books about the Civil War, and it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside to, like, have an area that I know a lot about. I'm like, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot about Agatha Christie and cats and Civil War books. But, like, 95% of books about the Civil War are written by men, and, mm. you know, 99% of those are written by white people, so I don't think mm -hmm. we need another podcast about them. However, I am happy to make recommendations about Civil War books whenever, you know, I've read specific books about, um, you know, sex during the Civil War, uh, the plants, the weather, the costumes, the costumes, <laughs> they're not costumes, <laughs> the, the clothing, <laughs> the, the, you know, the uniforms. Um, and so I know a lot about it, but I don't know that I would ever do a podcast about it. And our last question today, Chloe wants to know, what is the best book you have read lately? Yeah, when I saw, obviously, 
you know, any of the books that I talk about on the podcast, I really enjoyed, but I was trying to think of one that didn't make it onto the podcast. And I really liked The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp. Yes. It came, yeah, it came out a week that wasn't, you know, the first week of the month, so I didn't get to talk about it. But it is a YA thriller that is also bisexual, apparently. I'm just talking about bisexual books today. <laughs> and it is amazing. It is so fast paced. And it was it weaves together stories of who she was when she was being raised by her mother, who's a con artist, and had to play all these parts in her cons. So it kind of flashes back and forth between this bank robbery that she was being taken hostage in and the roles that she had to play in these cons as a child. And it is really great. It's also brutal like it yes. comes with a lot of trigger <laughs> warnings it does not shy away from violence or anything else but it was amazing so I would say that one I was super jealous because I got it kind of late in the galley game and I was mm-hmm. like oh I'm gonna talk about this and tears I had already snagged it and so <laughs> I was like darn it but we did also talk about how it is so brutal it's like all the trigger yeah. warnings yeah but it's so good and going to be a series on Netflix with Ooh, Millie Bobby Brown, so which is good. great. Yeah. Um, I have, let's see, I loved The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling. Caitlin Starling wrote Luminous Dead, which was like that claustrophobic cave mm-hmm. novel from mm-hmm. a couple years ago. This one is about a woman who marries a doctor, uh, and they have kind of like a business-like relationship with their marriage. It's a marriage of convenience. However, he tells her she's not allowed to ever visit him at his crumbling family estate that she must live uh, above his surgery. And, of course, she winds up at his crumbling family estate one night and learns why he doesn't want her there. And I also read When the Reckoning Comes by Latanya McQueen, which is this fantastic horror novel about a black woman who is invited to her childhood best friend's wedding and it's at a plantation and she's conflicted about going but also when she goes there are going to be some ghosts from the slaves who were killed at the plantation that are pretty mad about everybody being there and it's just Mm. this excellent examination of slavery and racism and it's so creepy i loved it i want it to be a movie it was so good yeah so those are our questions for today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Dr. Baker, who is doing today's sound editing while Jen Zink is out. Uh, you can drop us a line and ask us a question at all the books at bookriot.com. You can find us online. Danica hangs out on Twitter at Lesbrary. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Friends and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today and our favorite sneakers, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.